Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101. This is Matthew Aaron. This episode is not a 101 episode per se. It is a little bit out of the norm. Usually, when I have interviews with individuals, they're people in the crypto space. We talk about them, their lives, a 101 on somebody that is, well, directly tied to cryptocurrency. My guest today is indirectly tied to cryptocurrency because he is one of my influences in podcasting. Ever since 2014, I have been listening to Mr. James Altucher. And when I started my first podcast in late 2015, I modeled my podcast interview style after him. As you'll hear in this interview, I can tell you what happened with that. And he had some great advice for me, other podcasters, and goes into his theory on life. One of the things I really liked about his podcast, the way it started, is he grabbed his laptop, he got into his car, drove across the country, staying in Airbnbs, interviewing some of the most interesting people that he knows. And this served as an inspiration for me to say, hey, if he could do it, <laughs> I guess I could do it. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mr. James Altucher about life, about philosophy, about living the best life you can, choosing yourself, and a little bit about blockchain and cryptocurrency. I want to give you a special thanks to the people at XYO, good friends of mine, for hooking this interview up. It was their persistence that allowed me to walk into Mr. James Altucher's house, sit down in his living room, drink some of his beverages, and have an almost three-hour conversation. We cut this down to about an hour. Remember, this is not trading advice, investment advice, financial advice, and definitely, well, maybe a little bit of personal advice. And another special thank you to Shift Markets for sponsoring this episode. We'll see you after the show. Digital asset exchanges are emerging as some of the top gainers of the cryptocurrency market. One of the best ways of getting involved in crypto is by owning an exchange, which has the highest touch point to all new users and multiple streams of revenue. Don't waste time trying to tinker with the complexity of building your own exchange. Shift Markets lets you skip that step. We've combined our network and 40 years of cumulative trading experience to successfully launch over 70 crypto exchanges around the world. Introducing our flexible turnkey solution that allows you to enter the world's fastest growing market, Cointrader. Whether you're targeting a specific country, starting a fiat gateway, or providing liquidity for tokens, our white label crypto exchange platform features a custom package to match your strategy and style. Innovation doesn't just happen, it's created. Start your own crypto exchange in as little as six weeks and shift into the world's fastest growing market. Talk to us today to demo our product at shiftmarkets.com. Mr. James Altucher, welcome to Crypto 101, sir. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I haven't been on that many crypto podcasts in the past year, so I'm very excited to be on this one. It's very exciting to have you because, you, to be honest, you're probably the longest played podcast on my podcast list. I've been listening to you ever since probably much, pretty much you started almost every interview. So this is like meeting like a podcasting hero. It, oh, thank you so much. I started the podcast at the end of 2013. Well, I started interviewing people at the end of 2013. And I think we launched January 2nd, 2014. It's been a long time. I've been, I've been, I was just thinking about it this morning. I've done like a lot of podcasts because some, we, there was periods where I was doing three a week. There were like two or three different years where I was doing up to three a week. Uh, I've, I've done all sorts of formats. Then for a while I was doing another podcast called Ask Altucher, which was daily. And then on top of that, I was doing one with Stephen Dubner who wrote Free Economics called Question of the Day, which was three times a week. Mm -hmm. So there was some weeks where I was my own podcast. I was doing up to like 11 a week and then I would go on other people's podcasts. So, you know, you want to do a podcast for a reason. And so one reason is 
you know, to educate listeners and, and to pursue, you know, talking to people you're interested in and learn things from them. But, uh, but the other thing for me is I always want to get people on my podcast that are going to make me better. And I'm just trying to think now, or I'm always wondering this, but I was thinking about it this morning. Since 2013, have I become a better person because of all the great people on my podcast? And it's hard to know because I don't really remember everything from every podcast. Like when you read a book, how much, what percentage of the book do you remember? Like 2%, 3%? Yeah, yeah, very small amount. And same thing with the podcast. I don't always remember. I remember like some things that really hit hard, but I won't right. always, particularly because you do so many sometimes. Like sometimes we'll go a couple of weeks without doing any. We release now two a week, but you get a backlog. So yep. some some weeks we do none, and some weeks like last couple last month we've done we did thirty. So wow. and then you just go and I prepare like six to twelve hours for each one. So sometimes you go from one to the next to the next, and then I don't have time to really think what did I learn from that. And it, I don't know I don't know what it would have been like if I had never did these podcasts. Well, I have to say that from my personal point of view is that my podcast is starting to create who I am. Like listening to your podcast, listening to things like from your show, for example, like Ariana Huffington and Tony Robbins. I still use Tony Robbins quote from your show to advocate for cryptocurrency. He said, when is the best time to, to get into the market? You know, you're talking about, you know, they going up or going down, you know, do you wait for it to get a little bit lower? He said, no, you just don't, you just fucking do it. You get, get into the market. And yeah, because I still tell everybody that in the crypto space, like just go, just do it. You think it's going to go up? You believe in the product? Invest. Right. Bitcoin is not, or any cryptocurrency, it's not a trading it's, it's not like a penny stock. If you believe in the long-term story, that means you believe a significant amount of paper currency is going to be replaced by digital currencies over the next two, five, 10, 15 years. So you just need to hold on because, you know, there's a limited supply of Bitcoin, right. but there's, you know, 50 trillion or $150 trillion worth of demand for money in Absolutely. the world. And why would you ever trade it just because you're up 100%? I once met a guy, I went to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting in 2003. Mm. And I met a guy who told me a story. He once bought 200 shares of Berkshire Hathaway. He was from Omaha. He knew this young guy, Warren Buffett. So in like 1977. Guy, huh? Okay. Yeah. So 1977, <laughs> he bought 200 shares of Berkshire Hathaway. After a year, it doubled. He sold 100 of the shares, started a very successful restaurant in Omaha, oh, worked at it for the man. next, you know, 20 years and and then retired, you know, sold the restaurant and retired. But the other 100 shares at that time was worth something like 13 million. Now, now what's Berkshire Hathaway? I don't even know, but it's worth over 20 million, I guess. Wow. So, Man, I, when I started this show, I copied and emulated your podcasting style because you have such a unique style. You tell everybody at the beginning of the show, he's like, you get so excited that you interrupt a lot because you just get and you want to go run with these ideas. I tried that and failed. So how'd you fail? Failed. What happened? The listeners didn't like it. I was not able to not like you, you navigate it as part of like who you are as part of that interview as part of the conversation. And it, it works seamlessly when you do it. For me, it sounds like I'm being a dick and interrupting people. No, I, I by the way, so so a couple interesting things you said, the listeners, uh, and sorry for interrupting you. The, li <laughs> the listeners uh, don't like it. My listeners don't like it when I do it either. Some listeners don't like it. Okay. And they're the ones who write to you. The listeners who don't mind, they're never going to write to you and say, man, it's so great how you're interrupting everybody. It's only the listeners <laughs> who really hate that you're doing that that are writing you. So even if it's like one tenth of 1%, those are the only people you're hearing from. So you're hearing from like however many, like, 50 people in a row, stop interrupting, stop interrupting. Let your guest speak. He's your guest. Let him speak. Show right. some respect. I get those emails all the time. I almost never hear from the people who like that I'm interrupting 
But the podcast grows every episode, so clearly some people are liking it. Well, you're hearing from Run right, right now. I like it. Yeah, interrupt. Thank you. Keep doing it. <laughs> but but you see, you were never written. You would never even have thought. I have that, never never thought to write you. <laughs> yeah, but like of course the the, the vocal it's called it's called the vocal minority. Right. They will always write because they're a little bit insane and they're always going to write and tell you what's on their mind because they're what's on their mind you should follow too. They sit at home doing you know nothing except criticizing and people. Criticizing armchair podcasters, right? And then yeah, uh, you know, like like we were just talking, we've done like thousands of podcasts. All right, let me do my podcast. You, you know, do what you do, and I'm sure you do right. it good. And and let me do this. If you don't like listening to it, what? Here's the reason why you interrupt. Let's say I have Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google, on, and he says something that I think is interesting that I'm curious about. When else am I going to be sitting across from Eric Schmidt, the ex CEO of Google? Right. You know, worth twenty billion dollars. Not that that means anything, but you know. I'm not going to call him up and say, Eric, hey, you know, I forgot to ask you this one thing. I'm just really curious. Is there really a secret enclave of billionaires where you're all like plotting to take over the world? Wait, is there? He said, no. I asked that. I interrupted him and asked him that question because I was curious. Why not ask it? So you're never going to have, I'm never going to have the chance again. I only have that one chance. I, I, I call bullshit on that. I bet you there is. If I somebody, think so too, by the way. Yeah. Somebody who listens <laughs> to your podcast understands and knows your story. But I don't know if my listeners all know your story about starting your podcast. Can you just please tell me that story? Tell everybody that story because it's so fucking cool. Yeah. So basically this one company uh, wanted me to do an investment newsletter and I didn't want to do it for a lot of reasons. I just enjoyed writing every day mm-hmm. and I was invested in a lot of different companies and, 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 but then, but then they said, okay, well, how about we just don't do a newsletter. We'll just host a podcast for you. You have, you know, a lot of interesting people just do a podcast mm-hmm. uh, uh, and we'll host it. And I said, okay. And so I just called to all my friends and I got every, it became this great way. Hey, talk to me because I've got a podcast. It got, became this great way. Right. If I read a book, like, I don't know, just pull a random or, <laughs> or like, here's a random photo. So, so like in this photo, I'm, I'm, I'll describe the photo for listeners. In this photo is Jim Norton, who's a world famous comedian. Uh, the Jizza from the Wu-Tang Clan sold 40 million <laughs> copies. And, and Gary Kasparov, the best chess player in, in history. And Maria Konnikova, who wrote a great book, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, or Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, and then another book about the history of con men. And mm-hmm. she's writing, a, she's a professional poker player now. So when else do I get to be in a room with all of my heroes in one place, and then I could just talk to them? It's because I have a podcast. So basically, you're a Wu-Tang fan. That's what you're saying right now. I, in the 90s, I had a company making websites, and the Wu-Tang Clan was one of my first customers. That's so right. I, built, I remember you talking so about I that. So I built yes. all, all of the Jizz's websites back then. And so when Gary Kasparov, so the Wu-Tang Clan, you know, one of their, their, I think their second album was called The Mystery of Chess Boxing. So the Jizza is into chess, Gary Grease is his name, is into chess. And um, I, we called him when Gary Kasparov, the best chess player in history, was coming on the podcast. He came right over. He, he brought his chess board. And then after um, Kasparov left, uh, the Jizza and I uh, played chess for about an hour. All right, so Jizza versus Kasparov, who won? Well, Jizza didn't play Kasparov. Oh, okay. He just played me. Oh, who, I played who won? Kasparov. So uh, I, I won every game, but the Jizza was was good. I would say you he, beat Kasparov. 
Uh, no, I've played Kasparov. Oh, okay. Kasparov to me is like me to the Jizza, which is the Jizza to the average person on the street. Okay. <laughs> so who knows how to play chess? So making a podcast and is your in to talk to all these great people that you already know, but get them to one room and just basically nerd out with with like your heroes. Yeah, sometimes I know them, sometimes I don't. Sometimes uh, I'll read a random book and I'll think, oh, this book was really good. I'm going to just call up the author and say, I have a podcast, come on over and right. talk to me. And then, you know, one out of 10 will. Uh, so we've had on a lot of great guests that way, like Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, Sotomayor came on, mm. uh, Jordan Peterson, mm-hmm. Arianna Huffington. I didn't know them in advance, really. They just Sarah Blakely, who started Spanx, Tyra Banks. I didn't know them in advance, but they they came on anyway. But how how did you how did you get these amazing guests? I mean, is it just that you just threw it out there like so a lot of emails to welcome people on, or is it is it the clout of, that your podcast has now? You have had so many people. Does that help you, or did at the beginning that first you know, emails. How did you get that start into getting these great guests? Well, now it's different than when I first started, but now I have a great podcast producer, Steve Cohen, sitting right here. He was, Hi. A, Hi, he, was a, he was a producer for TV news for 30 years or whatever. And uh, his, what do you have to do for TV news is you're constantly, you have to fill the chair with a guest. So you have to call everybody up all the time and get guests. Like that was his 24 uh, seven job. And so it's almost like Steve is like throwing a, a nuclear bomb at to destroy a little shed because it's like we fill up I'm, the podcast. I'm gonna, I'm gonna flip my trivially. mic over to Steve because I'm super cu- curious about this really, really quick. Like, so my question to you is, is: Is it like like direct response marketing? Do you just like have a pitch? Do how do you get yeah, talk to these people? Thank you, Matthew. Um, and thank you, James, for the kind words. Um, <laughs> no, I, I always joke with James because I think. It's he's very, very unique and he's the easiest person I've had to book for. I called him the Honda Civic he sells himself. Um but I think that Does the Honda Civic really sell itself? <laughs> I would have <laughs> That shows Honda you Civic. like sloganeering. You could say anything like make America great, fair and balanced, you know, uh, four to five dentists. No, but I think I think certain things sell themselves. I mean, but um he is like a Swiss army knife. He could do so many different things. He just mentioned Kasparov or he likes rap music or, you know, he's obviously an expert in cryptocurrency, which is why you're interested in him or, you know, he's written 23 books. He's just, he's a computer programmer. He loves comedy now and he gets really into it. So I, I think like I knew enough people where you can get some momentum. And I, I just, um, I've always felt like, how do you get people to a party? You invite them early. You invite them often. You be a good host. You tell them who else is at the party. You know what other parties they're going to. So I'm not just like sticking a needle in a haystack. But I also think sometimes by asking for people that maybe most people wouldn't even assume would say yes, you know, I think it comes down to him. He's willing to do stuff so you get momentum. Like we've had some very big names where most people wouldn't do it. But like, you know, well, we had... Steve Merchant, you know, like he said yes, like the day before. He, he created he created the office, Stephen Merchant, Ricky Gervais. And he just, so for me, it's like not just saying, okay, you know, um, James, would you mind doing this? Like he does it. And then those people over there, you know, it's a small world and it's pretty transparent. And those same people might have Amy Poehler and Seth Rogen or, you know, 20 other people in the comedy world. And they'll remember that. When they gave us Stephen Merchant the day before, he watched the office. He knew extras. He knew where the guy went to college. He knew every little, you know, detail about him. That, that's the thing too is that is that yeah. preparation really goes a long way. Like if, when Stephen Merchant sees that 
I've seen stuff he's done on TV in 2003 or when I watched, you know, an obscure special he did, yeah. you know, 12 years later or when I read articles or whatever. Or if Yuval Harari, who wrote yeah. Sapiens, sees that I've also read his PhD thesis on 12th century medieval fighting, they're like kind of, you know, nobody, no other podcaster has has mentioned that to him. I'm the only one. So you you figure they're going, when someone's going on a book tour, they're talking to a lot of people. So they get used to the same questions and they get used to giving the same answers. I try to figure out how am I going to get them out of that. And I think that uh, impresses them. And it also consequently makes the podcast more effective. People would rather listen to this podcast with that guest than another podcast with that guest. So that means this podcast will sell more books for them because they're usually promoting something like a book. So that, so then I become known among their publicists and the publishers as, oh, if you want your your author to sell more books or to get publicity for a movie or a TV show, get them on this show because the James Altucher show, because it'll, it'll, he'll prepare more. He'll know more. He'll, he'll watch mm -hmm. the movie. We just had someone on who produced a fairly obscure indie movie. We, we I was probably the only podcast she's done where I actually watched the movie and was able to, and then I researched all the actors and, mm -hmm. and the process of making the movie and the story behind the movie. And so, you know, there's different ways, there's ways you can attack research and preparation that um, help. And then having good guests is like Steve saying. So one of my guests has been Robert Cialdini who wrote a book called Influence. It's kind of funny, actually using the principles of influence have, have helped the podcast a lot. So you know, one of the principles is authority. Uh, so when people look at this podcast and they say, oh, Mark Cuban's been on, Arianne Huffington's been on, Tyra Banks has been on, Guy Kasparov's been on, or whoever, uh, it signals to other people who are peak performers, okay, uh, this is a good podcast for me. And then we have social, what's called social proof, a lot of good testimonials or a lot of people recommend it. Mm -hmm. So when a Supreme Court Justice, Sonia Sotomayor, was trying to figure out what podcast to go on, and, and she had... I don't think any Supreme Court judges has been on any podcast. I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. And she asked her niece, what podcast should I go on? Her niece was already listening to the podcast. <laughs> so her niece suggested this podcast. So how did you get to this point? I think I think we started this conversation with, instead of a newsletter, you made a podcast. You now kill it. But how did you get to this point? Yeah. So I think I had a lot of good guests on right away. Okay. Mostly from friends that I had built up through either, you know, the prior 15 years or more of building companies and investing and writing. So I kind of, I've kind of interwoven several careers simultaneously. Like I was a, an entrepreneur several times. Uh, I'm an investor. Uh, I was a hedge fund manager and I've written lots of books and lots of articles. And so, so I've kind of interacted with people from a lot of different universes. So I was able to call everybody ranging from, so my, in the first month or two, I was able to call everybody ranging from Mark Cuban to Arianna Huffington, to Tim Ferriss and Tucker mm -hmm. Max and, you know, Mark Echo, uh, Jim Norton on the comedy side. Uh, so I was able to kind of get a, a large variety of guests really quickly just from my past background. And, you know, that catapulted into continuing to get more and more guests. And, and now it's like a machine because often publicists approach us and Steve goes through those, but also also Steve knows all the places to go. You can't just call Barack Obama, for instance, mm -hmm. but Steve knows who to call, who is the closest to Barack Obama. Speaking of Barack, Barack Obama, he was on Mark Manson's uh, podcast. Mark Maron's podcast. Man, sorry, Mark Maron's podcast. He, Mark Maron was just on your show, right? No, Mark Manson. Mark, Mark, Mark Manson, I apologize. By the way, uh, Mark Maron, 
should come on my podcast. Uh, in 1997, and this is where being involved in lots of different worlds helps. In 1997, I used to watch, um, there was a dinky little place on Ludlow Street uh, where all these indie comedians would perform every Monday night. Uh, it was called the um, the Luna Lounge, and it was on Ludlow Street. Mm-hmm. And Mark Maron was often the MC, and I was a huge fan uh, and then, you know, it was many years later, he started his podcast, but, uh, but I, I've been a fan of his from way back. You like what you do? Uh, yeah, most of the time. I don't like being busy. So when we have 30 podcasts in a month, that's a little bit too much for me. I get, you need, you need to have downtime to be mm-hmm. creative Yeah, and creativity. You know, people talk about burnout, mm-hmm. but it's an interesting word, burn out as, a, and creativity is like kind of fuels the fire. Mm-hmm. But then if you're all the time working, it removes oxygen from the fire, and that's where burnout happens. I, I 100% agree. And that's actually one reason that I love being a podcaster is that I like being creative. I like talking to people. I have learned better listening and talking to to you. Everything that you're saying right now, I'm internalizing. I'm going to put that into my podcast as well because it's gold, by the way. Um, and, yeah, but you do need that downtime. How do you recommend people that, you know, just work all the time, the 9 to 5 or even maybe 9 to 9 how do you recommend to give them that downtime? Do you recommend them to find a new career? Do you recommend them to fight against the, the man maybe to get that downtime, to get that creativity? Or do you think that everybody doesn't need that? I don't think, well, A, I think everybody needs it. We're all creative beings. We're just by evolution. You know, our ancestors were creative. If they couldn't find food, by definition, they had to find food somewhere else. You never would have been born. Mm. So so the ancestors, our ancestors, or the humans who survived were the most creative ones. So mm-hmm. we're, we're all creative. It's in our DNA. Mm-hmm. And and burnout is a real thing if you clamp that creativity. But uh, I think our creativity muscles have often atrophied from the nine-to-five job. Mm. So I don't say everybody – I have written articles. Everybody should quit their job. But it's almost like tongue-in-cheek. I do think you can be very successful at a job as well. Mm-hmm. Um but you do need to approach it the same way an entrepreneur should approach his job. Like entrepreneurs shouldn't be busy all the time either. Like right. everybody needs downtime. Now, a nine to five job, think about it. When I've had a nine to five job, no one worked nine to five. Like, I don't know anybody. Like you take three hour lunch breaks, you take coffee breaks, you take cigarette breaks, you go to the water cooler, you're surfing the web. I don't know. When I was at a nine to five job, I think the average person working around me probably worked two to four hours a day. Mm-hmm. And I'm not insulting them. I think that's the difference between a nine to five job and other jobs. That's, that's a good thing too. Right. I think then that gives you opportunity. Okay, don't surf the web. Like one friend of mine, a really great uh, writer who's now writing uh, a well-known TV show, he was telling me one time he was taking the subway, or not the subway, the train into work every day. He lived in Connecticut, he was commuting to New York. And he saw everybody was just either sleeping or reading the New York Post. And he was like, you know what? I'm not going to do that. That's like a waste of this hour. So he wrote one page a day. Mm. And within a year and a half, he had published his first novel. Wow. So now he has a TV show, but he's still publishing novels. I think he's got like four mystery novels out there. Okay. He didn't have any extra time. The other people were just reading the post and he just pulled out his laptop. It doesn't take much to, you know, a page is what, 300 words? It doesn't take much to write 300 words on an hour long commute. Isn't that part of burnout though? If you always are trying to push to keep yourself busy and fill your time. So yeah, you're working say for the man, you know, nine to five, you work nine to 11, you go to the bathroom, go to the water cooler, maybe grab a, a snack, but then you fill in that other hour in that you know you're gonna be surfing the web and you start writing that page or whatever, but you're still always working. Is there, right. so, how, how, how do you get that leisure to get to feel that energy? So nine, nine to five, right, is really 
almost a 12 hour day. Let's say it's a 10 hour day. It starts when you, when you wake up, you have to get ready to go. You commute to the train, you, the train commutes you to work or your car commutes you to work. Uh, then you're working nine to five Then you go home and you eat dinner. And next thing you know, you've been working from seven to seven. So, but you, but you actually only did two to four hours of work. Mm-hmm. So for a nine to five person, there are ways to structure your day where all you need is an extra hour to be, to light that creativity muscle, to fuel the fire. He needed just an hour to write a page a day. And now he's published four mystery novels on top of being super productive at his job. Cause maybe if, if the average person works four hours a day, okay. Right. If you work four and a half hours a day, then, you know, or across 250 work days in a year, you've worked an extra 125 hours compared to all your colleagues. So you're going to be seen as incredibly productive at work and you're going to write an extra novel a year. And by the way, we only gave you an extra hour and a half of work on a on a 12-hour day. So that means you still have six and a half hours of free time if you work on if the average person works a four-hour workday. Is, is, is part of it also like diversifying what you do? For example, you, you're an investor, you're a podcaster, you're a writer, you're now deeply heavily into Bitcoin. You write a newsletter, you have products coming out for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency that I can't wait to talk about, by the way. Is it part about being diversified? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, there's so many different examples from all of the podcast guests, but I'll tell my own example. When I used to uh, be a day trader from 2001 to 2008, really, I was a day trader. Either I was day trading my own money, but then I became a professional day trader, day trading other people's money. And if you just, if all you do is day trading, and by the way, I worked really hard at it. I wrote software to help me day trade. I studied all the day traders. I, I, I was really intense about it, but you have to diversify what you're doing. So I also was, if day trading wasn't going well for me that day, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to write maybe right. a little extra this day, or I'm going to study, learn a new skill this day. So I was, I'm always very interested in games as you can maybe tell from some of the things around here. Like so, your socks? So, oh, yeah, your SNES socks? What are on my socks? I think it's the SNES controllers, right? What are, I don't know. Yeah, that's Nintendo controllers. That's funny, that's probably the one game I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I would study, I remember there was one point when I was day trading every day and I said, forget it, I'm gonna become, during, during my downtime, I was gonna become an expert at the card game Hearts. And then I became an expert at Scrabble. And then I got really into backgammon. So I would just study games in my spare time. And then I would just start jotting down ideas of other ways to invest. So I would learn other investing strategies. And that helped me because several years later, I started a fund of hedge funds where I wasn't just investing, where I was investing in other investors. And, but I was knew enough about every investing strategy because I had spent all this free time studying other investment strategies that I was able to invest across 12 different investing strategies. Like I was an expert at doing due diligence on all these very complicated investing strategies. I, I don't want this to come off the wrong way. So I'm apologizing in, in advance. You think I'm a dick? <laughs> no, I was definitely not going to say that. I was going to say, do you're not normal. Are you, is that like OCD or is there something that you like some kind of drug you should be taking? Because how, how, first of all, how do you get into so much things? How are you working so much? I mean, the average person is like I'm fucking tired. Like, yeah, but I, I get really tired too, but, uh, uh, that's why it's really important to, it's really important to, be to do the math to be aware of what your downtime is to understand why you're doing things like if you're gonna spend 8 p.m to 10 p.m watching primetime tv i'm not criticizing that that's fine some people would criticize that but understand why you're doing it and what you're getting out of it again you don't have to get something out of everything but i i am careful even about 
okay, what am I watching on TV? Is it a story that is going to improve me in some way? Is it gonna make my storytelling ability better? Is there a story about something that's gonna interest me? Is it story funny so it'll improve the way I think about humor? Um, and again, it doesn't have to be. You can also watch Real Housewives of whatever, because mm -hmm. maybe that's interesting to watch in, in some cases. But try, if you're really gonna take a three hour lunch break, maybe take a two hour lunch break. I'm, taking, I'm exaggerating, I know not everyone takes three hour lunch breaks. Maybe take a two hour lunch break, use the other hour to write that one page a day or go to a museum or mm -hmm. read a book. You know, reading is incredibly important because if you never read, let's say I read and you don't read, then I'm like a vampire who's lived 300 lives and you're just you. <laughs> so I've absorbed the lives of all my heroes because I've read all of their right. books. Right. And so, and by the way, reread good books because you you don't remember everything from from a book. So you have mm -hmm. to reread the, the the best books and not waste time reading bad books. Re, you know, use your extra time to read. And if you're not reading to prepare for a podcast, that, that's your downtime. You're reading because it's fun. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. sometimes I'm reading to prepare for a podcast, not as fun. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's not. Because it seems like you just like OCD on everything you do. Like you said, podcasts, you go into, you read, uh, you read uh, uh, Yuval Harari's PhD paper. Like, yeah, that's a little. Yeah, you have to OCD extent, everything. Yeah. You know. So I was just, I was just saying to some, like, if you give me a year of my life, if you like just say a number between six and 51, I will tell you what I was obsessively interested in that year. I've, I have never had a year of my awesome. life. Awesome, nine. I, what, nine, I was really into astronauts. Okay, two things. I was really into <laughs> astronauts, so I read everything I could about like Skylab had just kind of ended. And of course the Apollo missions had just ended. So I read everything about all the astronauts, cosmonauts, everything in the space program. And then I got, I started getting really interested in like obsessively interested, I don't know why, in politics. But no, I didn't understand the issues. I was only nine years right. old. So I got really obsessively interested in the game-like behavior of campaigns. So I read like- Pick a number. 17, chess. I, I At the age, right at the end of 16, I played my first chess game really uh, in a tournament. Uh, and then I figured, you know what? I'm gonna get really, really good at this. And- by the time I was a little over 18, I was uh, New Jersey's junior chess champion and I was a, a master and uh, I was one of the top rated young players uh, in, in, you know, for my age group in the country and because I get obsessed. Mm -hmm. And then, there's a skill to meta learning. So learning how to learn. So I knew, okay, I need to buy, I need to identify what are all the micro skills of chess, what, then get books on each micro skill. Then I need to get teachers. So I got the best player. You're living near New York City. You can get the best players in the country to be your, 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 your teacher for relatively little money. And Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI powered help bot, 
Our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And I would play in every tournament I could to get that training. And I got good very quickly at, at chess. So go back to my original question. There, Something's wrong with you. In a good way, but something's wrong with you. But I had downtime too. I, 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 you know, the thing is when you get obsessed with something, then you know how to like maximize the moments you do it. I wouldn't play for fun, for instance. Like mm. a lot of people, oh, they just play for fun. Even when I went out and played like in a, at a chess club at night, uh, I'd go home and like try to remember the games I played and I'd study, oh, this guy at the, at the Rutgers University chess club played, uh, these openings against me. I'm going to study these openings. So next week I'll, I'll be ready for him. You'll kill him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had, and then I had downtime because I knew how to focus my study time. These obsessions, and now you're obsessed with Bitcoin and blockchain and cryptocurrency and things like that. What, what what's the obsession aspect of it? What was, what was the, the 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 click that made you go? I'm going to focus now on this. Yeah, I would say I would say it happened almost two years ago, actually, in mid 2017. Um, first off, a lot of people. You know, in, in somebody asked me, I used to do this Twitter Q&A every Thursday. I did it for like six years without a break, except for Thanksgiving each year. And from 3.30 to 4.30, I would do a Q&A and people would ask me questions and I'd answer all of them. And somebody would ask me, somebody in early 2013 asked me about what do I think of Bitcoin? And I said it was a scam. And so uh, Naval Ravikant, who's a, a big player in the Bitcoin space mm-hmm. and cryptocurrencies in general, he, I knew him. And a tweet machine, a guy who tweets the best tweets ever. Yeah, no, he's such a smart guy. He's one of the smartest guys ever. And um, Naval was visiting New York and he's like, let me explain Bitcoin to you. And I'm like, sure. And so we spent an entire day just going over every aspect of how he viewed Bitcoin. And then I started reading, there was no books at the time. So I started reading uh, blogs about it. The good thing for me is, I have a the background. I have a computer science background, mm-hmm. and I have an investment background. So there's very few people involved in the Bitcoin space that have both that understand, you know, the history of cryptography and software development and what all of these things actually mean. You know, the value of the code behind Bitcoin, right. and also understand investing, like and the, and and why, you know, and the, the history of of the economy and and currency and why. Bitcoin is sort of a necessary thing that's being developed right now. Mm-hmm. If, if Bitcoin hadn't been developed, 
uh, then somebody else would have developed something almost exactly the same. Like mm-hmm. it now was the time it had to be developed. So what is what is that the use case for Bitcoin, as you see? Everybody's talked about it as being a P2P payment system, but it's now turning into more of like a reserve system. Do you think, which one do you believe that Bitcoin is at right now? Or what do you, how do you think it's going to go? And I'm asking this question because as a P2P system, it's super slow. You see companies like Apple came out with their new debit card that now can all go overseas. You get money, uh, cash back. You could use it everywhere. Do you think that maybe the crypto space that these traditional companies, these traditional banks, these uh, big companies like Facebook's going to do their uh, Zuck Bucks and we have, you know, Apple. Do you think that Bitcoin is a proof of product, something that shows you what the world needs in this new global society? And these companies are might even take make better products than Bitcoin is. Or do you think Bitcoin is the end all of this, the, the, the end, not the means? Uh, that's a great question because it, it kind of it's a lot of questions at once. So I, I, I tend to do that. I kind of like puke on uh, on the table and hope the good guests can like, figure out what I just did. So my, my one word answer to all of it is yes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you said, what are the use cases? If you just look at like the history of, of money, you know, as society evolves, money runs into problems. So so let's just for the sake of argument, say barter was the first kind of money. It wasn't really. Okay. It was used in some primitive societies. If you want, if I have a bag of rice and you make shoes, what if I only have enough rice for one shoe or, you know, mm-hmm. so there's, problem, there's obvious problems with barter. So that's why um, precious metals that were, and they're precious because they were hard, they were difficult to mine, they were rare. Gold and silver right. were rare, whereas other metals were not so rare. So so that's the only, it's not that gold is so shiny that we we love gold, it's that gold was rare and it was and it was hard to to get a hold of. So, so, so it was harder to, to counterfeit and so on because could, you could weigh gold, and and if someone was counterfeiting it, you could tell by the weight, right. the weight that it's not the right amount of gold. So gold solved this problem of barter. Now gold has problems too. Let's say your kingdom is attacked by the next kingdom, and you have to move. Well, you're going to carry all your gold on your back. What if you're a wealthy person? You True. can't. People couldn't be wealthy. You right. had to carry it. Gold was too heavy. There was no there was no international banking. So they created paper money. And 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 now uh, paper money was backed by gold, but now there's fiat money, which is paper money not backed by gold, just backed by trust. So there's obvious problems with, with fiat money. One is uh, if I if you're in China and I'm in the U.S., I've got to go to my bank, which goes to the local reserve bank, which goes to the uh, central bank, which goes to the SWIFT wiring system, which goes to the Chinese central bank, which goes down to the Chinese regional bank, and so on to get money. And there's fees all along the way. So not only is there potential for human error at every stop, there's also the potential for government agencies to spy on you on every piece of that transaction. There's also fees, which creates inflation in the system, you know, in every place. So that that's a big problem with fiat money. Obviously, right. cryptocurrencies solve that. Um, and some cryptocurrencies more than others solve the privacy issue. There's also problems with, obviously, forgery. You know, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies can't be forged. There's also problems with kind of human error in terms of policy. So mm-hmm. you and I could be sitting here and someone at the Federal Reserve right now could be printing up an extra trillion dollars like like right. they did in the financial crisis. Right. Now, fortunately, that seems to have worked out and it wasn't an error, but what if it was? And and the dollar turned into like the Zimbabwe right. dollar and we right. had massive inflation. We didn't know, you and I wouldn't have been able, if I had a dollar in my pocket, I don't know that someone in Washington, D.C. is not deflating this moment, the value of or inflating the value of of the dollar in my in my pocket, so right. there's all these basic problems, you know. And that's because of centralized authority there, uh, that that human error. That's just so. That's just a few of the problems. 
and and cryptocurrency essentially solves all of these mm-hmm. problems and more and then some there's all sorts of things with with blockchain where it actually solves issues of contract law like with blockchain because you can track every transaction steve could tell me hey the checks in the mail oh show me the blockchain number and i'll tell you if the checks in the mail or not right. like so there's all sorts of things with basic contracts that that blockchain and cryptocurrency solve now is bitcoin the winner Right now it's the winner, but you know, is the US dollar the winner? Maybe yes, maybe no. It's not the only currency in the world. There's there's artificial borders. Why are there Canadian dollars and US do- right. dollars? Because Canada is a separate country. They didn't want to join the US to fight the British. So so with crypto, there's what I call problem borders. So okay, Bitcoin is very is private, but not as private as some people would like. Like I can see every transaction. I just don't know who made the transaction. That part is private. Well, there's currencies like Monero or Zcash where it's a little bit, There's it solves a problem that Bitcoin had. Just like Bitcoin solves problems that fiat currency mm-hmm. has, problem borders create new currencies. So this is why in 20, mid-2017, I was on CNBC. Everyone always says to me, oh, James Altucher, he was pumping these altcoins. No, I was on CNBC in August 2017 saying 95% of ICOs or these altcoins, these other currencies are scams because they weren't solving real problems. Right. They were just sort of you being used as trading vehicles and pump and dump. Right. So I don't know where, or I have guesses, but I don't know why people always say this. When I was saying from the beginning, the whole reason I got into this space was in terms of writing about it, I didn't want to write about it at all. I had a real reason why I didn't want to write about it. and But I kept seeing people who were reading my other stuff, they were asking me more and more about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And then I saw them getting involved in these so-called shit coins. And so I wanted to educate. And you had all of, everybody in Silicon Valley saying, oh, you gotta you gotta understand cryptography, you gotta understand blockchain. And it's and they they couldn't explain it. They literally could not explain from from a historical point of view, from a money point of view, even from a technology point of view in a layman's terms, what these things were. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to explain to people, because again, I have a of a writing background, a technology background, an investing background. Right. So I understood what was happening and I was able to explain it in a way that people understood, which I think people were grateful for. And I think so the people in Silicon Valley kind of resented it, is my guess. That, that's interesting that you mentioned China, by the way, and how that, that money works. And I have a I have a really pretty tragic story and I and this is why I'm into Bitcoin. I really I just will share this with you because sure. because shit, that's what we're doing is is I needed to move money from from uh, the United States, Cleveland, Ohio, like you said, uh, from Cleveland, Ohio, I went to New York, New York to Beijing. I opened my branch in Beijing. as being a foreigner. I lived in China for. Why did you need to do that? My my son needed a surgery, and so I had a son. He had a heart defect, and uh, in China, you have to pay for a surgery first before you get it. Oh it's, my gosh! Even, even if you have insurance, because then you pay for it, and the insurance will reimburse you. It's not like we'll go in there and they'll take care of it on the back end. No, so. I had to move from the money and it just, honestly, it took too long and I couldn't get that surgery done. And Bitcoin is one of those solutions. What happened? He passed. Oh no, I'm really sorry. Uh, no, no. What was his name? His name was Saad Montgomery. Anyway, so yeah, the, he, he, he passed because of that system that, was, that just didn't work at, at the speed of, like I, I call it the speed of life. At the way that we, as a global community, I moved to China, you move all over the place. I'm in New York right now. I'm, I live in uh, San Diego. We could have done this on a Skype interview. Everybody's connected in a way that money isn't yet. Yeah, like, and think about, you mentioned um, Facebook uh, is making their own cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. They're not 
okay, maybe they're doing this for who knows what their reasons are. But it seems to me the real reason, which is a good reason, is I could send money to you on Facebook. Like it, there's an option when right. we message each other. I could send you $500, say. Right. Let's say I needed to help you and you needed $500. I could send it to you. What I appreciate you, that. Very generous, by the way. Thank you. What if you lived in another country? Now it starts to get complicated. So right. Facebook, this is a simple way for Facebook to participate in the multi-trillion dollar market of international microtransactions. Mm -hmm. You know, and they're already like, you know, with, with their acquisition of WhatsApp, which is how people communicate internationally now, yep. like this is, they're building themselves up to be probably the, the greatest financial powerhouse in history. Absolutely. But they needed to solve all the problems I just mentioned and that you just mentioned tragically about fiat currency mm -hmm. and centralized control of currency. They need to solve these problems. It's not like they're trying to beat the government or, or whatever, these problems are going to be solved absolutely one way or the other, and absolutely. Facebook is perfectly positioned to solve it. It's the it's 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 the it's the first, it's the really first global connected company. I mean, McDonald's is global, but it doesn't really connect people. Right. Facebook does. That's why I call this um, Bitcoin a proof of product. It's like it really showed everybody that hey, we could do things a different way. And now you have these companies, these banks, these uh, corporations coming and saying you know what, maybe these problems, as you just said, these problems do exist and people want solutions to these problems. And now we have, there's a market that just got created because of that. Right, and and think about it. Think about, and this is this is the other thing too, that from Silicon Valley, as deeply as they understand Bitcoin from a crypto point of view, and even Wall Street, as deeply as they understand investing, there's another important piece of this, which is important, which is every industry in history evolves. So medicine, if you were sick a thousand years ago, you would go to your local shaman or priest or whatever, and, and he would tell you, pray to God and you'll get better. Right. Uh, and you would blame, maybe I did, I sinned, maybe I did something wrong, that's why I'm sick. Okay, fast forward through the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution, we, we went from theism to humanism. Now you wouldn't go to God, you would go to a human doctor, someone who was trained and maybe they were trained well, you know, or maybe, you know, they were trained not so well, but they would say, okay, take two aspirin, Call me in the morning. Maybe that works. Maybe it doesn't mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. Now, medicine went from theism to humanism to dataism. Now you go to a doctor. They say, I can't help you yet. Go get these blood tests. Let me see your your <laughs> DNA results. Right. Uh, let's. We're gonna have a uh, uh, we're gonna do a robotic surgery on you to fix the problem because it's too technical for me to do. You know. So we 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 trust data now even more than a doctor. The same thing has happened in war. If in the Bible, you'd see two countries or two kingdoms go to war, whoever had the more powerful God would, would, would supposedly win. Then humanism, whoever had the more bullets, more humans on the ground would win. Now it's dataism. The war is being fought today, but it's just all cyber warfare. Mm -hmm. There's no more, there's, there's very little gun warfare compared. There's, there, there's thousands and thousands of data attacks on every single company and every single country every single day. And so war has gone from theism to humanism to dataism. Mm -hmm. Now money, we're going from in God we trust to in George Washington we trust to <laughs> dataism. Right. Like you like this is a natural evolution. That's why I say combined with when you look at it, the problems it solves combined with the natural evolution of every industry, this is an inevitable thing. So people tell me, "Oh, Bitcoin's up. Do you sell? Do you buy? Do you trade?" No, if you believe in this story, 
you 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 believe in this story. This is the direction of the of of global society right now. Scott Scott Shepherd of XYO. He is uh, he actually has a, a website called dataism.com and this is what he advocates all the time. After of course reading uh, Homo Deus, Yuval Harari's book, um, and Sapiens, of course, is, right. is just pushing through the this this. Honestly, that's a beautiful uh, example you just said. So 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 it was a combination of, and I I admit it, it's a combination of. You know, Yuval Harari didn't apply it to money, but he explained it in in Homo Deus and and Twenty One Questions for the Twenty First Century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only that, not only Yuval Harari, but also uh, Matt Rivoli in the Evolution of Everything was the one who described uh, evolution across uh, uh, every industry. That's the next there, book on my list now. Thank you. And then there, or there's plenty of books too on the on the history of money uh, and the history of currency. So so again, this is why I say reading. Um, it literally like makes you money. It makes like money shower mm-hmm. down because uh, that's how you get these insights into where history is going before everyone else does. When you combine, uh, combining, who would think reading a book about, you know, human beings in 70,000 BC and another book about the evolution of every industry and another book about the history right. of economics would bring one to understand Bitcoin a little bit better. And uh, in a way that can be explained to the layman. So I started seeing, oh, people reading my other stuff, they weren't understanding what was Bitcoin was about. So they were go, they were just like, oh, Bitcoin's going up, this coin's going up, this coin's going up. Here's a coin for gambling, it's going to go up. Uh, here's a coin for left-handed people, it's going to go up. <laughs> and and there was coins like that. And 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 normally I don't like to write about specific investing things. I like I think right. people need more ideas than just which stock is going to go up next. But I saw so many people making mistakes with crypto and I saw there was a, uh, the, the, this is bigger than anybody could have imagined. It was, it's like, for me, I was there literally at the beginning of the web and started a web company early on and saw that. And this to me was even bigger than the the web. So I thought, okay, this is really important. So I put together a course I put a lot of effort into uh, putting together a weekly ongoing newsletter, sometimes several times a week. And in order to sell things, you have to advertise things. And I right. think, you know, this went against the ethos of Silicon Valley. And I'll try to explain to them, I'm just trying to get, you're, you're never going to get ex- acceptance of Bitcoin without mainstream America right. understanding what it is. Right, exactly. Nobody calls Amazon uh, an application on top of the TCP IP protocol, which is what it really is. <laughs> right. People say Amazon's a store because over the course of five years, let's say from 1996 to 2001, people were edu- the layman was educated in what Amazon really is and your credit card's safe and here's what we do and, and, right. and so on. Same things are gonna happen with crypto. You have to explain it so that middle America can use it. Now people say, well, your ads, they're so scammy. They look like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, A, I don't make my ads, but... Uh, Alain de Baton, he's this philosopher in France. He has this really great video. You know, often nice guys have to use Machiavellian tactics. Let's say, mm. let's say there's a thousand newsletters about crypto, and let's say I really thought mine was the best. I can't just say, "Hey, I'm the nice guy, buy mine," and these other 999 are scams. They're all blurring with their horns and advertising everywhere and no one's gonna even notice mine. Right. So you have to use their tactics. And I would say to people, I'll send you my product for free. Just look at the product, then you could judge me. I'm happy right. if you judge me based on the product. No one ever did that. They just would look at these ads 
and say, oh, you know, why are you, why are you doing this? So tell me a little bit about the product. I mean, so what, what is your product that you put out that uh, makes it so much better than everybody else's? I mean, everybody else is with megaphones saying, hey, mine's the best, mine's the best. But James, we listen to your podcast all the time. You have, and you, we already just talked about it. You obsess, you research, you go into it. I'm going to assume this newsletter is pretty much the same thing. You're, you're going to break it down pretty good. What is in that newsletter? What is in that course? Yeah, and well, I want to be clear. By the way, I am not trying to promote or sell the course here. Uh, no, I'm just curious. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm going to put it down too. It's like we're not we're not here to promote your course or sell your course. I'm just curious. Yeah, and by the way, 99% of my views on Bitcoin and cryptos are free. Like I've written about them for plenty of places. I've been in, on CNBC talking about them. Even when you sign up you get a uh, uh, for my newsletter you get a free course about cryptocurrencies explaining and how to open your first account with cryptos and buy them and and so on so i try to give away as many things as possible for free the course is i mean the newsletter i teamed up with kamal ravikant who the name ravikant might be familiar is naval's uh brother okay and uh kamal and i work together on it you know we we basically are constantly looking at every cryptocurrency out there and when I say we're looking at, we're looking at what's the use case, what's the history of the, t- you know, every every cryptocurrency has a team that's developing the cryptocurrency. So what's the history of the of the team? Did they have other companies beforehand, other successes beforehand? Is there any problems with them ethically or or whatever? We look at the code, just make sure, you know, as much as we can. We look at we look at the code. I'm a I'm a software guy from from way back, and and then. Kamal is like the best networker I've ever met in my life next to Steve Cohen, my podcast producer. And so Kamal <laughs> will, he'll even call. He, he just travels around to conferences and meets all the developers of these currencies. And he'll call people, he'll have dinner with people, he'll meet with people. And he gets a sense, like he'll be face-to-face with the developers of these different cryptocurrencies. And we try to put together a portfolio. Okay, here's a problem we see with either fiat currencies or with Bitcoin needs to be solved. What currencies are solving it? Oh, there's five currencies solving the privacy issue. Mm -hmm. Which one or two or three do we think are the best? There's, here's another problem with Bitcoin. As you mentioned, sometimes the transactions are slow, particularly like with microtransactions or the fees are too big. Although those fees have gone down a lot recently, but uh, what currencies solve the speed issue? What currencies solve the fee issue? What currencies solve contract law issues? So, you know, we try to find problems that are being solved by different currencies. And then we do the deep dive on the people, on the code and so on. But here's the thing. I said in in 2017 on CNBC, I said 95% of cryptocurrencies are a scam. So now if cryptocurrencies were a fad, like many people claim, you know, very many smart, incredibly intelligent people say, oh, cryptocurrencies are a fad. It's going to go away. The whole thing's a Ponzi scheme. If that was true, then... Right now, about since that moment in 2017, about 80% of cryptocurrencies have gone to zero. They, they were mm-hmm. proven to be mm-hmm. scams. The number is going to go up, but so far it's about 80%. Right. So basically, you know, we have a portfolio of coins. Um, let's say it's a dozen. Could be a little more, could be a little less. Basically, if, if crypto was random and a fad, like everyone's saying, we only would have had, you know, a one in five chance for each coin that it wouldn't have gone to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with tw- across... 12 coins, it's, you know, 20% to the 12th power, which is a tiny, tiny, small percentage chance that we wouldn't have had at least one coin go to zero. It's 
it's like one one thousandth of a percent chance that that we wouldn't have had at least a single coin go to zero. We've had no coins go to zero, which show it almost proves not that we're good, but it shows that crypto is not a scam and not, mm. and not a fad. And then if you do the work, you can identify the four out of five or the 95 out of 100 that are that are scams. So I, I assume that the first place you start is probably the use case. When I was just telling you off air about um, XYO and what they do with the GPS on the blockchain and how you can spoof uh, GPS, right? And you can say if Pokemon Go is always my favorite example is, oh, my Pokemon or the, the Pikachu is going to be in Africa. And I can spoof myself sitting here in your apartment, beautiful apartment, by the way, over in Africa, get my Pikachu, come back to this conversation with, you know, and that's a problem for products, especially if you're talking about Amazon deliveries on, on GPS, if you're talking about Tesla's cars, driving around using GPS. And if somebody could spoof that, if somebody could hack that, that seems like a problem. They're doing it uh, on the blockchain. Is that like your first step is the, is that uh use case? Is yeah. that the first thing you, you look at it? You go, okay, they're doing GPS on the blockchain. That sounds cool. Yeah. I'm looking into it. There has to be, there has to be a really strong use case uh, or else what's the point? Why would I not just use Bitcoin then? Because mm. Bitcoin is the default. If I'm going to buy, if somebody's just off the street and have their first experience with with cryptocurrencies, they're going to buy a Bitcoin. There's no, there's not a really a reason to buy anything else. When looking at the use cases, could you pass up things because you're just not there yet? Like for example, if you're looking at Amazon, somebody says a bookstore on the uh, on the internet, and they're just like, "Why the hell do you need a bookstore on the internet? I just go to a bookstore." Can you overlook a good use case by just not getting it yet? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like for instance, take gambling. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, gambling is obviously a trillion dollar industry or a hundred billion dollar industry. Uh, so there's probably a use case in there um, for, for crypto. And there's, there's, there's issues about gambling that, that are important that are on, that are different from other transaction types of transactions. But I'm not there yet in terms of understanding how crypto solves the gambling use case. Mm-hmm. So, so I just use that as an example, but you know, just like I used to be a venture capitalist in, the year 2000, which was a bad year to be a venture capitalist, but that was like the peak of the internet bubble. And there were so many use cases of the web that were just stupid, right. but it was just anything <laughs> with a dot com was raising money then. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were plenty of stores. Amazon.com was, was one of them. There were plenty of search engines. I, I turned down investing in a company that became an important part of Google. I would have made a, an, an unbelievable amount of money, but I didn't think I thought the search engine use case was 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 solved and nobody was really making money with it. So I didn't understand Google. But with, with crypto, I understand broadly the use case as money. And then just bit by bit, you know, you look at there's like macro, important macro use cases like privacy and um, faster transactions. Mm-hmm. There's There's macro ones like that. And then there's more functional ones like GPS or gambling or, you know, uh, trade finance or, you know, lending money. Right. Uh, those are a little harder to figure out who's going to be the winner. How do they, how are they solving this? And I have to understand that from a technology point of view, as well as a personal point of view, as well as a use case point of view. So those are a little bit harder, but like I said, we've done, we've done a good job so far where remarkably if, if crypto was truly a, a fraud, there was nobody, there's no way we would have been able to pick 12 currencies that all have managed to survive and even and even grow in some cases while during this crypto bust where 80% of coins have gone to zero and, and, and with more coming. Before I ask this last question, I, I want to say, first of all, thank you very much for your time to come on Crypto 101, allowing me to one meet one of my inspirations for being a podcaster to oh, come into the space and um, yeah, and just spending so much time with us and showing us your home and 
Thank you. Yeah, That's I, I appreciate it anytime. Have, have me back anytime. Crypto 101 has positioned itself to be basically the, the, the doorway into cryptocurrency. Everybody that comes in, great SEO, by the way, it wasn't on purpose, but it worked out beautifully that everybody says cryptocurrency, beginners or 101, it, they come to my show eventually. And they're going to hear this podcast, maybe since Bitcoin might hit 8,000 today, this could be their first podcast or thing that they hear about blockchain cryptocurrency. What would you tell that new person coming to the space right now going to go on this adventure? I would say, you know, look, for the reasons I stated, it almost have statistical proof that some version of, no matter how poorly you think of cryptocurrencies or digital currencies or the people behind it or whatever, almost statistically, I've, I've proven that it's it's here to stay. It's not it's not a fad. It's not going away. And it's been around for, for 10 years. It's, you know, it's only grown. Um, you know, if you look at as an asset class, if you look at stocks, gold, oil, other currencies, other stock markets and cryptocurrencies, cryptocurrencies is, is the, the asset class up the most in 2019. It's mm -hmm. up over 60% in 2019. Right. So as, as an asset class. So it's not going anywhere. Buy some Bitcoin. Don't put all your money into it. Buy, you know, put 3% of your net worth into it. If you if you have invest in, investing money to spare, you know, put 3 to 5%, maybe less, maybe more, depending on how you believe in it, or diversify across a couple of good cryptocurrencies. The other thing is you could wait because pretty short, pretty shortly there'll be plenty of ETFs and meaning stocks on the stock market that will trade like Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. You could buy one of those just through your stockbroker. So that's happening in a huge way right now. And in 2019, that's one of the biggest things happening in 2019, making crypto accessible to everybody in the world. And until now, it never has been accessible. It's only on these obscure exchanges that were not really trustworthy. So, so, so the fact that it's getting regulated now makes it a lot more trustworthy and that regulation is happening. Mm -hmm. Also look at who's starting to accept it. I think Whole Foods just announced that they're, guess who owns Whole Foods? Amazon. Right. So this is something I've been saying all along, you know, Amazon, you know, when I, I so I mentioned to you earlier, I built this Bitcoin only store uh, uh, to sell my book, Choose Yourself. Choose yourself in, yes. in, in May, 2013, I built this. And I could see the emails. I made everybody leave me the email if they used a Bitcoin to buy my book. Uh, Bitcoin then was going for about 60 bucks. And, you know, I would say two thirds of my customers were all Amazon employees. So it showed me that even then Amazon was was looking at crypto. They they've never stopped looking at crypto. They, they you know, two years, almost two years ago, they they registered all these domain names like cryptocurrency.ai and or .io, whatever. And, uh, you know, every store, Target, I think, just announced, like all these, Walmart has blockchain being built into their logistics and trade finance infrastructure. Mm -hmm. The Federal Reserve is looking at, you know, blockchain, JP Morgan, the CEO said crypto is a, a fraud. Oh, why is your entire bank re-implementing all their, your, you know, financial systems, systems in blockchain? Right. You know, so he kind of ate his words and took it back. So I would say just don't buy a course, don't buy a newsletter, just... Just buy some Bitcoin and that'll just get you interested when you're along for the ride. People can't help themselves. If they own it, they're going to start researching it more. So right. buy a tiny amount and then figure it out. James Altucher, it's been a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. James, if you're listening, thank you very much for coming on the show. Don't forget to follow Crypto 101's Twitter, CryptoPod101, and my personal Matthew Aaron 101. And if you're looking for a great community of like-minded people to help you get started in the space, 
check out our Facebook group, Crypto 101 Community. In our next episodes of Crypto 101, we have more 101s on some of our favorite projects, coins, tokens, and people in the space. Also coming up, we have two great series. Our first series is on the skeptics of blockchain and cryptocurrency. And our second series with Mr. Michael Shilnai during New York Blockchain Week. We'll see you in future episodes of Crypto 101. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.